All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17 in your Bibles, looking at verses 1 through 10 this evening. Title of the message, Offenses and Faith. Offenses and Faith. If you are a born-again believer in this room this evening, saved by putting your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to redeem you, you have a measure of faith, faith unto salvation, what we might call the lowest rung of, of true belief, that line where when a man or woman crosses it, they enter into the faith. Now from that point on, each person's faith goes in what we might call a slightly different journey. Some have more of it, while some have less of it. Some exercise their faith more, some exercise their faith Less. Some grow quickly while others grow slowly. Some have a limit and stop growing to some degree or another. Others continue to grow and grow and grow and bear fruit in the hundredfold rather than just the fivefold or the tenfold. And because of the individual nature of faith, many have come to believe that faith is therefore something that is personal. Let, let me say this again. Because we understand faith to be individual in nature, where we all exercise it to different degrees and we all grow at different rates, we likewise take faith to be personal in nature, as if it's to be kept to ourselves, as if our faith does not touch others, as if we're not actually an organism made up of multiple members that are interplaying one with another. And what we understand from Scripture is that this is not the case. Our faith, though it is very individual, is, is indeed not just personal. Paul calls it in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, the common faith. Our faith is not our own, but is in many ways the property of the body of Christ. We are obliged one to another in faith. So much so that Paul devotes a sizable portion of the epistle of Romans teaching us that God wants us to submit our Christian liberties to the faith of our brethren. As we begin to gain an intimate knowledge of the Scriptures, what we learn is that though our faith is indeed individual, it is supposed to be anything but personal. We're going to learn about this concept this evening see what I believe to be a deep correlation between offenses and faith. That our faith is perfected not as it is pursued as individuals in a private or personal manner, but rather our faith is perfected as it is pursued individually in a corporate manner, in a connected manner, as we recognize how our faith touches the lives of others, as we live out our faith for and before our brethren. We pick up this evening in Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom 
they come. Our audience, again, is designated in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Uh, we have seen him speak to various groups. The last group he was speaking to was to the Pharisees, as he talked about the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisees who were seeking to justify themselves, who derided Jesus Christ for his message that no man can serve both God and mammon. And now Jesus is again speaking to his disciples. And his message to them was this. It is impossible, but that offenses will Come, let's begin to break down what Jesus is saying here. We're going to spend some time on the word offenses here because it is absolutely essential to understanding what Jesus is telling us. The word translated offenses is used 13 times in our New Testament. It is variously translated offense, stumbling block, occasion to fall, occasion of stumbling. The general concept of the Greek word is that something is placed in someone's path that causes them to be tripped up, to falter in their purpose or to falter in their direction. In the New Testament, we see it used in two distinct ways. First, and most regularly, we see it used in the Bible to describe a spiritual overthrow, placing into someone's path something that will divert them from the spiritual truth and so cause them to wander from, disobey, or reject spiritual truth. The second way it's used, however, is to describe spiritual truths which people encounter of which they are unwilling to accept. And so they stop progressing spiritually because they are offended by truth itself. One of them, we would say, is, is negative and the other is positive. While we never want anyone to be offended, uh, there's a big difference, is there not, between someone who is offended because you place a stumbling block in their path and so they, they falter in their faith or they wander from their faith or they disobey or they reject the faith and someone who you tell them the truth and they, because of their pride or because of their callous heart, are thus offended in the truth. Let's look at, uh, at, at the examples of each of these in terms so that we can get a better understanding. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, the Bible says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Here we see Paul speaking of Jesus Christ himself and describing Jesus Christ as it relates to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, as a stumbling stone, as a rock of offense. He emphasizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ has become a stumbling block to Jewish people then as it is even still today. The truths which their Messiah brought were truths which so contradicted their expectation and so offended their sensibilities of, of loving the world and the God of the law that they had erected, the false God of the law, the idol of the law in their hearts that they were unwilling to accept the truths of the gospel and so they stopped progressing spiritually. Anybody who hit that wall where they were spiritual, they were understanding God, but then they had erected this false God. And when the truths of the gospel touched them, instead of saying, yes, this is the true and living God, they said, no, I reject this. They stopped right there and there was no moving forward. The same description of natural Israel stumbling at the truth of the gospel would be used in Romans 11 verse 9. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Galatians 5, verse 11, 1 Peter 2.8. All of these are examples where the offense is truth itself, and that caused uh, particularly the nation of Israel to stop short of saving faith, to stop short in their spiritual 
understanding in their spiritual progression because they were offended at the truth. The other example we'll use this evening of the negative form of offense, uh, we find in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, the Bible says, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In this context, Jesus has just announced that he must die, that he must suffer, that he must be rejected of men. And Peter says, no, Jesus, you don't have to do that. And Jesus then turns and says these words to Peter, calling Satan through Peter, the message of Satan that was being spoken uh, by the mouth of Peter, an offense to him, a stumbling block to him. This message that Jesus should not have to die was exactly what Satan wanted to tell Jesus. This is a, a, a part of what we saw in the, the temptations of Jesus during his 40 days in the wilderness. Satan was attempting to divert Jesus from his path, to divert Jesus to, from the cross, because Satan knew that if Jesus took this temptation, that if Jesus was willing to not go to the cross or chose not to go to the cross, then mankind would not be redeemed and all of redemption would fall apart and Satan would win. And so we see those temptations in the wilderness and then we see the temptation here and, and Jesus calls it what it is. This is the message of Satan. This is the stumbling block that Satan keeps trying to put in my path to get me to falter, to get me to fail. And as we trace Jesus all the way to the garden, he is on his knees and he's struggling saying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. He didn't want to do it when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He didn't want to do it when, when people Peter uh, uh, broached the topic and kind of implied, hey, you, you, you don't need to do this. And he didn't want to do it in the garden. However, each time we see what, what we see as, as the eventual event in the garden, Jesus say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done and reposition himself, realign himself underneath the will of the father and go to the cross. So this is this other idea. This is the negative example, the negative concept of offense. We see it here. We see it in Matthew 13, verse 41, Romans 14, 13, Romans 16, verse 7, 1 John 2, 10, Revelation 2, 14. And this is the idea that we carry back into our text. Now, I gave you both of these, but let me be clear here. The one, the only one of these that we're talking about in our text this evening is the negative offense, is when you put something in in the path of your brother that causes him to falter in his faith. Jesus is not talking about bringing a, a truth to a brother and when you tell your brother the truth, he gets offended. That's not what Jesus is talking about tonight. Jesus is talking about this negative form of offense where you bring something uh, that that is wrong or you put something before a brother and in putting it before him, you are not regarding his faith, you are not taking care of him and then he stumbles in his faith. So in verse one, we see this. He, Jesus says it is impossible, but that offenses will come. It is not supposable. Jesus says that there will never be things in this world which should cause others to stumble in their faith. It is inadmissible to accept the premise that there will not be in this world among people, among institutions, among societies, among churches, people and things who will cause others, whether actively or passively to be offended and so turn their hearts away from the truth to stumble 
at something. Let's consider briefly what some of these offenses may look like, just so that we can take what we're, on, what, what we're reading and we can connect it to reality. A big one that we have today that causes people to be offended so that they are not saved so, so, or, or so that they cannot progress in their understanding of the Lord, either or, is what, what Paul would call science so-called or knowledge so-called. The pseudoscientific world has claimed that they can prove everything without God, that they can prove the operation of this world without God. But what they're actually spouting is complete nonsense. Even from a logical perspective, it is complete nonsense. They are convinced that the Bible must be a fairy tale, so they use pseudoscience, all of these smart-sounding words that are complete nonsense, even from a logical perspective, to overthrow people in their presuppositions about God. The Bible says men know in their hearts that there is a God and then they hear this pseudoscientific nonsense that says there cannot be a God, that science has disproved God and they stumble in their faith. Some to the extent where they say, absolutely, I don't believe in God at all and perhaps their, their journey unto salvation is cut short right there. Others, they've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. They hear this stuff and it causes them to compromise their understanding of the character of God in the word of God, in order to fit what they believe to be the facts of science. And so they cannot progress in their faith as they might otherwise progress in their faith as a believer because of these stumbling blocks that are in their way. They're also false teachers, those who for money, for fame, for any other number of motives teach false doctrine and so lead people away from the truth. To some, they hear all of these people and they see all of the, these, these, these money grabbers and they say, that's enough for me to believe that God cannot exist at all. Why would he let someone like that represent him so that they don't accept Christ? To others, they've accepted Christ and in their zeal, they go to these people who sound good and they end up fa- failing to progress in their spiritual life because they're caught up on the stuff that doesn't matter or they're too busy sending their money to someone to have him bless it, to send back a, a, a a little something else so that they can be cured from you know their arthritis and so they're no longer focusing on what actually uh, the, the the reality of of spiritual progression of spiritual growth of what it really means to be a believer because they're stuck on this stuff that doesn't matter at all false teachers can place in a person's way stumbling blocks unfortunately One of the most prevalent ways that we see this in the church is through hypocrisy, is it not? When a pastor falls into sin and someone looks at that and says, well, if he's doing the same things he's preaching against, then this whole thing is a sham and they don't accept Christ. Or someone that has accepted Christ and they're growing and they're learning and then the person that that led them to the Lord perhaps or the person that's been discipling them falls to sin and they just stop progressing in their faith because they become offended. We've all seen it happen. When a professing believer lives just like the world, so others look and say, if that's what it means to be a believer, I don't want to be like that because all it is is you you live like the world, but you have to go to church on Sundays and you have to give some of your money to, to people. Why would I want to do that? Or even a professing believer, zealous for the things of God. And then some worldly carnal believer comes and shames them for their zeal. 
and says, oh, you're just a legalist because you want to be holy, because you want to be sanctified, because you want to set aside the things of the world. You're just being a legalist. And they are, they are stunted in their spiritual growth because they've been shamed by those who should know better, by those who are supposed to have progressed past them. And the one that is actually the focus of this evening, perhaps we might say, although all of these are in play, uh, let me put it this way. One of the directions I'm going to go with it in the weeks to come as I'm not able to say everything I need to say about it this evening and I'm going to devote two messages to the concept of offenses later. When a believer, because of his liberty in Christ, callously judges or shames other believers for their convictions and so causes them to be offended in their faith and causes them to stop growing because of the shame or because of the confusion. And so Jesus gives a woe. He says, Woe unto anyone who through action or inaction is guilty of causing someone else's faith to be stunted, damaged, or overthrown. And remember, he's speaking to disciples here. Jesus is warning that disciples' actions and attitude can stunt or overthrow the faith of others. And Jesus is specifically talking about disciple-disciple interaction, stunting or confusing the growth of another disciple of Christ. Jesus says it's absolute that there will be points of offense, that each one of you, myself included, in our lives have come to places where there have been stumbling blocks, where there have been times where people have sought to convince us or philosophies or books or or the, the tug of this world have sought to draw our hearts away from the truths of God's word. And we've had to, some of us have stumbled at those stumbling blocks. Some of us have overcome those stumbling blocks. Jesus says it is absolute that those stumbling blocks exist. But Jesus says clearly and sternly, make sure that when those offenses come, they don't come through you. Make sure it's not you who brings about those offenses. And Jesus declares a woe upon those who would overthrow the faith of others. And in this context, we find a particular group takes center stage. Notice what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 2. He says, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Jesus tells his disciples that it would be better to be utterly silenced. A millstone being a very large, heavy stone that ground uh, various things that would, would, would grind wheat, that would uh, grind different grains. Better to have that very heavy stone put around your neck and you to be cast into the sea and so sink to the bottom and so be silenced forever than that you would distort destroy, stunt, overthrow, confuse the faith of another. And this is where we must pause for a moment and consider what's generally what I would call a misapplication of this text, or at least a, 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 a confusion that causes the primary application of this text to be muddied. In this Luke passage, we see the phrase little ones with little additional context to help us understand what that means. The word in the Greek, little, means small or little. It can speak, however, of many different things. It can speak of small in age, small in size, um, little in time, small in quantity, minor in rank or influence. It can mean all of these things. 
But in the parallel passages to this one, we find uh, the teaching takes a little bit of a different turn. If we just had Luke, we wouldn't misunderstand this at all. But because we have the, the, the other Gospels, we have both Matthew and Mark in this case, uh, there can be some confusion on this point. So the teaching comes up in Mark 9, and it also comes up in Matthew 18, which is what we'll explore this evening. The Bible says this beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 18. We'll read through verse 7. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. So Jesus picks up a physical child is what happens here. He picks up a physical child, but the child is only an object lesson. He's not talking about that child individually per se. He's using the child as an object lesson because his message is about discipleship, that any man who is converted will be converted as a little child, that he will have to cast off all self-sufficiency and pride that grows in a person through age and through accomplishment and seek God in simple faith and absolute humility. And we see this. This is why it's easier for young people to be saved because as they get older, they become self-sufficient. They get, their mind gets cluttered with all sorts of things and they, they get to the age of 40 and they say, well, look, I've made it this far. I'm just fine and, and I'm a fairly moral person and I'm not in jail and whatnot. So why, why can't I make it the rest of the way? Why do I need Jesus? If, 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 if uh, Jesus is supposed to pull me out of, uh, of my horrible circumstances, well, what happens if I'm pretty happy with my life, right? And that's the idea idea, but children, they have this childlike faith where they can hear something fantastic, such as that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, that he's alive today and that he's coming. And they can say, yeah, I'll invest in that. I'll take that. I love that. I want that. So he's using this child as an object lesson. Then Jesus says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like those who humble themselves as the little child he was holding. He doesn't say the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are children or is this child. He says the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who act in humility and in, in selflessness and, in, and in, in belief as this child. Then Jesus says... And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck. And then we see that, that phrase that, that um, we read in Luke as well, in Luke 17. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying here that anyone who receives a child by age receives him. Is Jesus really saying that whosoever offends a child by age is the worst of offenders? I contend that's not what Jesus is saying. 
I believe the context makes it clear that what Jesus is saying here, that as Jesus held the physical child on that day, Jesus was using him as a metaphor. That just as this child is simple in his thinking and he has the childlike faith to simply believe that he's going to be cared for and that he's going to be loved and all of those things that we know children believe implicitly. In the same way, those who come to Christ will come to God implicitly by faith, childlike faith. And then he says, whoso shall receive one such little child... Is he talking about that child? No, he's talking about one such little child, one who will receive Christ in childlike faith. One who has the heart of a child in belief. The physical child was just a metaphor. Whosoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Then Jesus warns that whosoever receives one such little child, one who humbles himself before the gospel of Jesus Christ, and is now one of his children, receives him. And then we get the warning. But whoever offends, whoever causes to spiritually stumble one of these little ones which believe in me. And there he probably wasn't pointing to the child explicitly, unless the child was a believer. He was pointing to those who have accepted me, those who have by childlike faith accepted the gospel, and whoever offends that childlike faith, whoever heaps into that childlike faith all of the, the, the same cares of this world and all of those protections and all of that idea, and whoever complicates that childlike faith, who causes him to spiritually stumble, it would be better for that person that they be silenced. That's the idea here. And here's why I felt compelled to park on this context for a moment, because quite commonly these verses are used by teachers and preachers to emphasize how much God loves children. Now, here's the thing. God loves children. He does. My children right now, one of their favorite songs is Jesus Loves the Little Children. They're really getting into it. We don't do a lot of children's songs at this church, and, and, and we don't do a lot of them at home either, but um, from time to time, either we'll introduce a song to them, or grandma or grandpa or whoever will introduce a, a children's song to them, and they'll really pick up on it. And right now, Jesus Loves the Little Children, and then they, they, they certainly love their creativity and that they've altered their song a little bit because we've got our little baby girl to, to sing Jesus Loves the Little Babies because they want Jesus to love their little sister so much. And, and, and indeed, Jesus does love children. However, they've used this passage not only to, to try to teach and preach that what it's saying is that Jesus loves children specially, but that there's a special curse upon those who would mistreat children. And there's a special curse upon those who would offend a child and it's also been used to justify any manner of favoritism towards children. And none of those things are what the text is saying. And that's simply where we need to be careful. We ought to love, care for, and unconditionally protect our children. We ought not hinder children to come unto Christ. We'll talk about that in a little while later in our Luke context, where he says, suffer the children to come unto me and um, don't hinder them in doing so. But the reason why Jesus said, 
what he said on this day was not having to do with children, but having to do with those who have accepted the gospel on the gospel's terms, which is childlike faith. And we all begin with this childlike faith. And you've all met Christians who have been jaded in their faith or who have heaped on top of their faith all of those safety nets of the world or who have returned to the love of the world. And so they are teaching other Christians that it's okay, that, that you need to stop with the zeal. You need to slow down in your excitement for Christ, and you need to start allowing the world to find its way back in, and you need to start putting up the safety nets. And so people begin to be jaded, and they begin to be offended in their faith. They, they, are, they are spiritually stunted by other believers who, who, generally speaking, are guilty because they see people that are zealous and they simply aren't. And that's the idea here. Consider what John teaches about this danger in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. The brother who loves his brother, the one who is walking in the light, will never purposefully put an occasion of stumbling into the path of another brother. He will never cause his brother's faith to be tripped up. And this uses the same Greek word as in our passage. So Jesus is warning his disciples against offending the faith of another. Now, there's too much, as I mentioned, to teach on all that needs to be said about offenses this evening. I want to take you to Romans 14 to 1 Corinthians 8, talk about the weaker brethren principle. Uh, see how this is enhanced and, and fleshed out as we get through other pieces of Scripture. But I just don't have time for all of that. There's too much to cover. So I'm going to preach other messages on it. We're going to move on today. In verse 3, Jesus says this, Take heed to yourselves. If any brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Now we see a different standard of discipleship interaction here. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus was talking about discipleship interaction as it related to the, the actual nature of offenses, that you would love your brother enough to not put an offense before his way, that you would not cause him to stumble, that you would not cause him to offense, to, to, to be offended, excuse me. Then Jesus lays out another level of interaction between disciples as it relates to trespasses against one another. Now, this is not the same word as offenses. This word here is to sin. So it's not that you're offending a brother again. Uh, so uh, the, the idea is not, okay, so don't offend a brother. And if you offend a brother, this is what the other brother should do. This is don't offend a brother. Now, new topic. And don't, don't, uh, and then forgive a brother. When a brother trespasses, sins against you. Now, the offense could be that sin, but it's certainly much more broad than that, right? And the standard is this, when a brother in the faith wrongs you, when he has trespassed against you, when he has sinned against you, you need to tell him. You need to let him know. If you don't tell a person who wronged you that they wronged you, you wrong them back. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about truth, that truth affords us the privilege of operating in reality, knowing what is actually going on. In some cases, a person does know that they've wronged you. In other cases, they may not know that they've wronged you. One way or another, Jesus tells us that it is right and it is expected 
that when we are wronged by another, that we go up to them and we inform them of the offense, that we inform them that they have wronged us. And nobody wants to do this because nobody wants to add that layer of complication, right? But this is what Jesus calls us to do. Because they're our brethren, it is our expectation that they will, upon hearing that they've caused a wrong, that they've made a trespass, that they will repent of that trespass. And if he repents, the Bible says, it is your responsibility to forgive him. It is commanded by God that we forgive those who have wronged us when they repent. It is not our right, nor is it our privilege to withhold forgiveness from those who ask for it. And when we do so, it would be for one reason and only one reason, namely because we want to justify ourselves, punish them for their wrong. So we withhold fellowship from them. We withhold forgiveness from them until they earn it or until we feel like they've been punished enough until I make them squirm for a while. Are are they going to forgive me? Are we going to be reconciled? But this is not our right, brethren. It is not our right to punish people for their wrongs against us. That's God's job. That's God's right. It is not our privilege to demand people earn forgiveness. That's God's, that's not even God's purview. It's just outside of grace entirely. Now, at this point, we need to make a few clarifying remarks. When I talk about forgiveness at Legacy Baptist Church, on the most basic and the most uh, uh, fundamental level, I teach that forgiveness does not demand that the person who wrongs you ever ask for it, deserve it. Even, even ask for it, as I mentioned. That we are to forgive without condition whether or not that person ever repents. And I teach this based upon a standard in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which says this, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. This standard of forgiveness, what I might call passive forgiveness, is a forgiveness whereby you release another person from their faults, from their wrongdoing, regardless of whether or not they ask for it or deserve it. It parallels the forgiveness which Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross, whereby when he went to the cross for all men, he, regardless of whether or not a person would ever ask for it, and certainly uh, without anybody being worthy of it, for none of us is made full provision for us. He died on the cross for us to be saved and satisfied the wrath of God between him and fallen humanity, between the Father and humanity. On the cross, Jesus purchased our redemption. He was made the propitiation, that's the satisfaction of wrath, for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Thus, Jesus, satisfying God's wrath, purchasing forgiveness for every man. But do you know what was not purchased for every man or what was not applied to every man on the cross is reconciliation. Forgiveness was purchased for every man. The wrath of God was satisfied for every man, but every man is not reconciled to Christ because there's a second layer there, right? And this is what we'd call active forgiveness. So when people say you need to pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins to be saved, I have no problem with that. Because there is this, this, this idea here that, that when we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, there's an active forgiveness that takes place. And that is us 
acknowledging our wrongs before the Lord, and so then there can be reconciliation. We're going to branch out on uh, in, in an, a separate message on this as well so that I can flesh this out in its fullness. But the idea is this, that when a brother or, or sister in Christ offends you, uh, trespasses against you, wrongs you, you ought to immediately release them as Christ released us even thousands of years before we could ever ever ask for it, much less want to ask for it. That release is not for their sake. That release is for your sake so that you do not become embroiled in bitterness and resentment. However, that release of, uh, of them does not reconcile the relationship. That, that relationship is not fully reconciled until such time as they come and repent and then you give them your forgiveness and their heart is released from the, the shame, the guilt, the condemnation, or the conviction, as the case may be, of that wrong. And then you two can be brought back into a right relationship. There are two different levels of forgiveness, and we'll talk about it more later. In verse 3 of Luke 17, we find this active form of forgiveness and reconciliation Another manner of discipleship interaction whereby the one who is wrong confronts the re- and, and rebukes the offender and the offender, if he repents, is forgiven and fellowship is completely restored. And notice the plane upon which this forgiveness operates. Verse 4 says, And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. This forgiveness is intended indeed to be constant, to be uh, uh, full, to be um, perfect. So that if a person does the same offense many times in one day, the number seven there being the number of perfection or completion, not intended to be a hard number, you're not actually tallying okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then when, when the seventh day comes, you look at the person, or the seventh offense comes in one day, you look at the person, you say, well, sorry, here's how this works. Uh, you're now on the eighth offense, and I'm only obligated to forgive you seven times in a day, so no, no reconciliation this time. That's not the idea, right? The idea of seven is perfect, complete, every time. And so every time a person comes to you in repentance and asks for you to reconcile with them, Jesus says, you'll reconcile with them. You need to reconcile with them. It's right to reconcile with them. Notice what Jesus has done in these four verses. He's established two essential truths as it relates to the relationship between disciples. He's warned them against the wickedness of placing spiritual offenses in front of believers, causing someone to be offended in their faith. He then warns against unforgiveness, calling upon believers to live in a constant state of reconciliation and fellowship one with another. Now, as the disciples listened to this, they perhaps became a little overwhelmed, maybe like you're feeling, certainly like I'm feeling. This is a high order. That's the way it is in my mind. I say, wow, that is a tall order. That is a high order. And so notice how the disciples respond. In verse 5, the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus, what you have just asked takes tremendous faith. It takes tremendous faith to gently guide 
believers without offending them, without, without placing stumbling blocks before them. It takes tremendous faith to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation at every turn and to put down my, my pride and my selfishness that would want me to punish people. And so the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. But interestingly here, Jesus responds to them in a way they certainly wouldn't have expected. The apostles thought what Jesus was teaching them was, if I can put it this way, next level stuff. Like this is the epitome of what it means to be a believer. This is the hard stuff. That the ability to humble oneself before another in faith, to forgive and to repent. This is really hard, high level, super disciple stuff. Super faith. And Jesus is going to tell them in the next five verses, "Uh uh-uh, this is not super faith. This is normal faith. You don't need, I don't need to increase your faith. You don't need extra faith to do these things. If you're a believer, this is your reasonable service. This is the bottom rung baseline of what it means to be a Christian. Really? Let's look at it together. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. This is the second time Jesus has used the picture of the mustard seed. Back in Luke 13, verse 19, Jesus said, In regard to the kingdom of heaven and its growth, it is... It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden and it grew and waxed a great tree and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Jesus compared the kingdom to a grain of a mustard seed which grew into a great tree. There we emphasize that Jesus was not attempting to teach that mustard seeds grow into trees for indeed they don't, but rather he was taking the smallest seed that they'd possibly know in their culture and the largest uh, plant that they would possibly know if, 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 if I'm sure there's somebody in here that's going to tell me that trees aren't plants in some way and, and that that's a simplification. But you get what I'm saying. The, the, the biggest plant that Jesus could think of and he's pairing them together to say it starts out small and it gets really big. Here, once again, Jesus uses the image of a mustard seed. You see it there on the screen behind me. Uh, You have the mustard plant there on your left, and then on the right, you see mustard seeds and the size of a mustard seed in relation to a grain of rice or to several grains of rice there. Mustard seeds are really tiny. And Jesus' point in this, in response to the disciples' request that their faith needed to increase in order to align with what he's telling them they need to do, is that the problem is they don't have enough faith. For even the smallest amount of faith is sufficient to accomplish great things in Christ. Even that they might say to this sycamine tree, be plucked up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would do it. Now, why a sycamine tree? A couple of possible reasons. First reason, maybe that was the tree that Jesus was by at the time and most likely because of the way he describes this, uh, you might say into this sycamine tree, right? So he's, pointing to the tree as he says this, but there's something more. The sycamine tree is a tree that grows in Israel and in that area of Canaan, and it is very hardy. And the reason why it's hardy, as most hardy trees and plants are, is because they have a very deep root system. And this deep root system would go deep enough in the earth that even in hard times, even in in droughts, and even when there's not a lot of rain, uh, it gets deep enough in the earth that it can find moisture. 
And so the, the idea here of this sycamine tree, it's also known as the black mulberry, is that you could even take this, this sycamine tree, which has such deep roots, and you could pluck it up by the roots. If you've ever tried to pull the roots, this, the roots out of, uh, of, of a deep-rooted plant or tree, it's a hard thing to do. And you could pull it up by its roots with just a little bit of faith, just a mustard seed's worth of faith. See, here's the thing. Forgiveness can be hard. Humility and love for the brethren can be hard. But faith, even in small amounts, is sufficient to enable you to do those things which you might deem impossible. As believers, the problem, even though we talk about growing in faith and increasing our faith, and that's, that's okay. We don't have to stop saying that, but we need to understand something. As believers, we have already accepted something pretty major here. That there's a God in heaven, that Jesus is that God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he paid for the sins of the world, that he's coming again. And that is pretty big already. We've placed the very reality of our eternity upon Jesus. As believers, the problem isn't that we lack the ability in faith or that we lack the faith. It's that we lack the will in faith. It isn't that we need an extraordinary amount of faith that we simply don't possess. The problem is that we don't want to exercise the faith that we have. The problem is that we don't have the will to do it. And Jesus makes it clear this is what he's saying in the next several verses. Verses 7 through 9, Jesus says this, But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, by and by, when he has come in from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I trow not. Jesus presents a scenario uh, unto which those that were around him can relate. We can't relate to it quite as well in our society, but here's the scenario as it plays out. Jesus asks, so if you've got a servant and he's out working in the field, or maybe he's not working in the field, Jesus says maybe he is um, uh, dealing with the cattle, um, feeding the cattle. He says either or in, in this scenario. And he's out in the field or he's out with the cattle and he comes in for the day. Do you look at that servant and you say, wow, you've worked really hard today. Why don't you go eat? Why don't you go uh, ha- have a meal and just kick up your feet and relax? God, Jesus says, that's not what you do. What do you do rather? Well, he comes in from the field and now it's his job to make dinner for you. Now it's his job to wait on you while you eat your meal. And then once you have finished everything that you need to for the night, and once he's put you down and, and, and gotten you taken care of and everything, it may sound like a child, but once, once he's helped you in every way that you need to be helped for the night, then he goes and he gets a little bit of food. Then he goes and takes care of himself. But he doesn't go and take care of himself until you are fully taken care of for the day because that's his job. That's what he is there to do. That's what he exists to do. And then being that that is what he exists to do, are you going to thank him? Are you going to thank him at the end of the day for doing what he exists to do, for doing what he's expected to do? Jesus says, I trow not. That word trow there being an older word, a word that we don't use anymore, meaning to believe or to trust or to think or to suppose. 
The Greek word is used 63 times in the New Testament. 31 of those times, it is simply translated by the word to think. So that gives you an idea of what the word means. Jesus says, are you going to thank him for doing what is his reasonable service? I think not. Are you going to tell him that he can kick up and relax when he comes in from the field? I think not. You're going to expect that he waits on you and then once he has gone, once he's done his field work and then he's waited on you, then he's going to, he's going to go worry about himself after that and, and you're not going to thank him. That's, that's his expectation. This is, of course, by cultural convention. Today, we tend to thank people even for things that are expected of them. A waitress comes and she brings the burger. You thank her. You, you, you thank the waiter. That's what they have to do, right? I mean, that's what they're being paid to do. And yet we thank them because that's how our culture is. It's polite and all of that. But in their culture, no, you didn't do that. There's no reason to thank a person for doing his job. You save your appreciation for when a person goes above and beyond. If my son's job is to rake the leaves every Thursday and I go out there on Thursday and all the leaves are raked, then he's done his job. He's done his reasonable service. He's done everything I've asked of him and it's expected of him. Should I thank him for doing what I expect him to do? I, I, I might, but in, in this culture, but I, I, I shouldn't necessarily feel compelled to, right? I mean, he's done what he's been told to do. Now, if he raked the leaves and then he bagged the leaves and then he put them all and he stacked them all and he got them all taken care of, then I'd look and I'd say, wow, you went above and beyond what you were expected. Thank you. Thank you. Now, ben, Benjamin's three years old, right? So uh, he's not going to be doing that anyway. But you get the idea. Thanks can be reserved for those who are worthy of commendation. And then Jesus says this as he applies in verse 10. Take, take careful note of this. He says, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our, was our duty to do. Jesus says the same way that a servant is expected to wait upon his master and if all he does is wait upon his master and then he goes and he takes care of himself afterwards and he goes to bed, he doesn't, uh, if, if that's all he does, he's not worthy of thanks. So too, if all you do in your Christian life is never put a stumbling block before the faith of one of your brethren and Always forgive every time a brother repents. You are just doing the minimum. You're an unprofitable servant to the Lord because all you've done is the bare minimum. And a truly good servant goes above and beyond the minimum, doesn't he? Wow. If you were to simply stop at those heavy, weighty things that Jesus commanded us to do tonight... All you've done is the minimum and you are a generally unprofitable servant of the Lord. And with this in mind, let's apply tonight with a couple of questions. Question number one. Is your perspective positioned to understand your duty? It's duty. Jesus calls upon us to render ourselves to be only unprofitable servants if at the end of our day, all we have done for Christ is take care that we have not caused a brother to stumble in his faith and to seek and grant reconciliation and forgiveness to all the brethren. These are things that our churches struggle with, aren't they? Think about the world in which we live. Think about the churches, uh, the, the, the church as it operates today, not necessarily this church per se, although uh, I think that we probably have some problems here with this as well. I would imagine that we do. 
I can't pinpoint any explicitly, but I'd imagine that we do. But as we think of the church at large, it becomes apparent quite quickly that on the whole, the church does not have a perspective to understand that these virtues are not those that define the excellent servant of Christ, but rather they are the very basics of discipleship. These virtues are not the things which will earn you accolades before the throne, but only reflect the reasonable expectation of the one unto whom we have bound ourselves in love. This is the the bare minimum, the reasonable expectation. Let us pursue, therefore, a fundamental alteration of our perspective on these issues, on offending the brother and forgiveness and reconciliation of the brother. So that when we find ourselves living outside of the deep love for the brethren that would seek at all costs not to put a stumbling block before them in their faith, to guard ourselves against such things, we would urgently and passionately flee to the cross with a heart full of repentance to get right, to get to that basic level of, of even unprofitable servants. So that when we find ourselves reveling in the spirit of unforgiveness and gossiping and slander and resenting rather than confronting and rebuking and reconciling, we would immediately and ardently fall on our face before the Lord and beg Him to soften our hearts and to make us willing to do what is only our reasonable service to do as believers. And that brings us to Paul's expression of the matter in Romans 12. As we speak of, of offenses, I'm going to be talking beginning in Romans 12 and then working quickly to Romans 14. And I'm going to take you to that first verse today in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to kind of establish this principle. He says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is our reasonable service, merely the qualifications of an unprofitable servant for us to make ourselves, to place ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And what does this mean? Because as I say that, I'm tempted to feel the weight of obligation and rest and guilt and self-condemnation for my general inability to measure up to that standard. But Paul is not causing, call, calling for us or asking us to live as sinless believers, to live in sinless perfection here. He isn't invoking your actions here. He's invoking a philosophy, your will. He's not saying you will always act perfectly as a believer and that you will be sinless. What he's saying is that you will be yielded as a believer. This is your reasonable service to be yielded. Not that you're not going to stumble, not that you're not going to falter, but that your heart is yielded. You're on the altar. You're ready to confess and forsake. You're ready to forgive and reconcile. You're ready. You're careful to not offend the brother. First question, is, it, is your perspective position to understand his duty? Second question this evening. And final question. Is your will position to perform its duty our focus this evening is not on doing that will take place in the messages where i actually speak on uh, offense and where i actually speak on forgiveness those messages will focus on doing our focus this evening is on your will where is your will where's your heart where are you positioned are you on the altar is your heart 
at a place this evening where you can honestly say, God, I'm on your side. I am your servant. I agree with you what is right. I agree with you about what is wrong. I'm not here to justify my actions or my thoughts. I'm not here to make light of your word or your will. And I understand what your word's telling me this evening, that these things, that not placing offenses before a brother in Christ, that forgiving and living in constant reconciliation one with another, that this is my reasonable service. This is the baseline. If I just do this, I'm an unprofitable servant. Can you say in your heart and in your will, even if I don't measure up on everything, practically speaking, I am yielded in my mind to the fact that you are God, that your way is right, that I am committed to positioning my heart to listen and to be willing to obey. You're human. You're sinful. This does not justify our sin. I'm not trying to justify your sin or give you justification for your wrong choices. I I don't want to minimize our sin but it reminds us that we fall short and to feel crushed under the weight of our inadequacies is to live under a burden Jesus died to release us from. But your reasonable service is to have a heart that acknowledges that even if it doesn't always make sense to me, God's way is right. Even if I feel like this burden is huge, this, this idea of, of not laying offenses before the brethren and living in forgiveness and reconciliation is huge. What Jesus said is that this is baseline and I'm going to believe that. And so in faith, I'm going to step out and do my best to live that and then watch what Jesus will do through you. If my heart rests with Christ, it's only a matter of time before my actions find their way to him as well. It may be a struggle. It may be a journey. It may take some time. But is your will positioned to performance duty? Is your will positioned to where you say in your heart, yes, every time I'm a, I, 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 tresp- I, I have someone trespass against me and they repent, I am going to forgive them. Now when push comes to shove, it might be tough. It might take you a couple days. But can you tonight say that is what I'm going to do because that's my duty? Or are you saying, no, I'm not going to do that? No, I I want to withhold forgiveness. Maybe the Holy Spirit is placing his thumb on someone in your life and they've asked for forgiveness and you've been withholding it. Are you willing in your heart tonight to say, yes, I will forgive them? Or are you going to say, no, 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 not with what they did to me. It's too far. That is a bridge too far. Is your will positioned to do its duty? this reasonable service. And for this week, let's do but this one thing. Let us come before God and say, God, when your will, as exemplified in your word, becomes clear to me, I will do it. I am committed. I am committed to these truths tonight that I am not to lay a stumbling block before my brethren and that I am to forgive the brethren when they repent. And they ask for forgiveness. Would you commit to that tonight in your will? That you will do what God has said to do and commit to it as not the epitome of what Christian life is supposed to be, but as your reasonable service before the Lord. Let's close in prayer.